This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On the morning of April 19, 1995, an off-duty nurse named Rebecca Anderson heard an explosion. 30 miles away in Oklahoma City, a bomb had just been detonated outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. Once Anderson realized the cause of the noise, she quickly drove to the bombing site and tried to help find survivors. She helped pull a number of people out of the rubble before she was struck by a piece of falling debris. Four days later, Rebecca Anderson died from her injury. She was the 168th victim of the Oklahoma City bombing. The bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Building is the deadliest act of domestic terrorism ever carried out on American soil. And though we know a lot about the men who carried out the attack and their motivation, there are still unanswered questions about how and why the bombing occurred. Over 20 years later, there are still mysteries about how a 27-year-old former soldier with no prior criminal record managed to stage an attack that killed 168 people and injured hundreds more. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. 
I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. Uh, But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. Many of you have asked us how you can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice, and it was evil. Today, we're talking about the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Building in downtown Oklahoma City. The bombing was orchestrated by at least two men, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. McVeigh was the chief architect of the plot. He was the one who actually detonated the bombs. Nichols assisted him. There's a lot to unpack about Nichols and McVeigh, thanks to a years-long FBI investigation into the bombings, expansive media coverage of their capture and trials, and their own public statements about why they did it. Still, there are lingering questions about how and why they killed 168 innocent men, women, and children. This episode, we'll be looking into the facts of the case. Next week, we'll talk about the conspiracy theories surrounding the bombing. There are three main conspiracy theories about the Oklahoma City bombing. The first conspiracy theory is that at least one of these men was being funded and supported by foreign terrorists looking to attack America from within. The second is that the U.S. government knew that the bombing was going to happen and either allowed it to be carried out or worse, aided the terrorists in their plan as part of an operation aimed at shifting public attention away from government scandals. And the third is that McVeigh's actions were part of a broader plan by the Aryan Brotherhood to kick off a race war, which they thought was inevitable. Well, before we discuss the bombing itself, we need to look at what we know about the two men who carried it out. What kind of person would carry out such a heinous act? What goal could they possibly be hoping to achieve? For Timothy McVeigh, the bombing was an act of war against the United States government. Today, McVeigh serves almost as a kind of prototype of the personality that appears again and again in instances of domestic terrorism. He was a loner. He was obsessed with the idea that society and the government had wronged him, and he had access to tools and people who would eventually enable him to do something violent. Timothy James McVeigh was born April 23, 1968. He grew up in Pendleton, New York. The forest near his childhood home served as the site of McVeigh's initial fascination with guns. McVeigh was shooting BB guns in the deep woods as early as 10 years old. His interest in firearms and shooting only increased after his parents divorced. McVeigh's grade school teachers noted that he was relatively uninteresting as a student. He had few friends and, though he was on the track team, showed little interest in any kind of extracurricular activity. He was bullied in school. We don't know the extent of it, but McVeigh himself has stated that being bullied as a child had an impact on his adult life. 
he never stopped looking for a bully to stand up to. Perhaps the only noteworthy thing about McVeigh's teenage years was his expressed interest in survivalism. Survivalism is the practice of actively preparing for a catastrophic civilization-ending event. Survivalists aim to be prepared to live off the land, and to that end, they gather non-perishable supplies and practice skills that they would need to survive if the conveniences of modern civilization were to go away. It's a movement that still exists today in some of the more rural parts of the country. While some survivalist groups simply want to lead a simpler life away from the chaos of modern civilization, programs like National Geographic's Doomsday Preppers often frame survivalists as conspiracy theorists themselves. The survivalist movement gained popularity in America during the Cold War. It was kind of an extension to the atomic bomb duck-and-cover drills that were common at the time. Survivalists in this period often pointed to the red menace of the Soviet Union as the main reason one needed to be prepared to survive in a post-apocalyptic landscape. At 14, McVeigh was already stockpiling food and supplies for a potential nuclear attack or communist invasion. He liked the idea of knowing that at any moment he could escape into the forest. As a teenager, McVeigh seemed to possess the worldview that he had an obligation to defend America, or at least his idea of America. To that end, he dedicated himself to becoming proficient in shooting and camping. Some psychologists have identified a potentially dangerous element in the survivalist manuals that McVeigh almost certainly read as a child— The emphasis on the Soviet Union and other communist countries as potential world-ending threats carried a pro-American mindset. Additionally, the rhetoric of the survivalist movement in this period seemed very focused on the conflict between the survivalist individual and the weak, unprepared society as a whole. For a kid like McVeigh, this could have been the start of his worldview where he distinguished himself as a man at war with society at large. McVeigh surprised his teachers in his senior year of high school when he was awarded the state regent scholarship for high standardized test scores. Up to that point, McVeigh had simply been an average student. He performed well in some courses that interested him, but his overall academic performance was passable. Despite the scholarship, McVeigh did not graduate college. He attended a local business college but dropped out after a few courses. He told a friend college bored him. Without a degree, McVeigh had few options for gainful employment. In 1986, the year McVeigh graduated high school, the country was in the midst of the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Blue-collar America was hit particularly hard during this period. Factories and plants were being downsized or outright closed as production moved overseas. As McVeigh himself put it, quote, There are no jobs unless you want to work for $6 an hour at McDonald's, end quote. For McVeigh, the economic turmoil was only part of the reason he was having trouble finding a job. He believed that affirmative action was also to blame. McVeigh felt that the few jobs still available were going to women and people of color. It was a view that fueled McVeigh's growing resentment of women, people of other races, and the government itself. That idea of America that McVeigh was so dedicated to seemed more and more based on a less progressive time. 
McVeigh never considered that it was his own antisocial tendencies or lack of significant work skills that held him back in life. No, of course, it was the government's fault. Today, McVeigh is named by psychologists as an extreme example of a disillusionment that was prevalent in people who became adults during the 1980s. The 1950s and 1960s were a period of economic prosperity for working-class families. The post-World War II and baby boomer generations saw a level of wealth and comfort that was unprecedented for the middle class. The economic troubles America faced during the 1970s and 80s were particularly hard on blue-collar workers and families. For the first time in recent memory, young adults were looking at a potentially worse economic future than what their parents had grown up with. Young people, specifically, who were entering the workforce for the first time, found there were fewer and fewer jobs to go around. As one psychologist noted, young people in urban environments who felt they had no options would often join street gangs. In rural areas, these people became drawn to fringe groups. Far-right-leaning gun advocates, radical survivalist communes, and even self-styled militias. McVeigh worked odd jobs for a few years before joining the military in 1988. He was 20 years old. Whatever motivation McVeigh didn't have as a high school student, he quickly gained in the military. He scored exceptionally high on aptitude tests, shot perfectly in his marksman demonstrations, and generally stood out for his eagerness to be a good soldier. It was during his basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, that McVeigh first met Terry Nichols. Like McVeigh, Nichols was also a college dropout. They reportedly had another thing in common. Neither of them liked working with black Americans. Nichols was 13 years older than McVeigh and easily the oldest person enrolled in basic training. He had signed up to join the army in an attempt to escape what he described as a monotonous home life. Before joining, Nichols had served mostly as a stay-at-home father to his son and two stepchildren. It seems that Nichols may not have really gone over his decision to join the army with his wife. She filed for divorce shortly after he arrived at Fort Benning. Nichols left the army soon after meeting McVeigh. His impending divorce created a custody battle, he received a hardship discharge, and returned home. Though he was only in the army for a short time, Nichols' time in basic had led him to McVeigh. It was a friendship that would change both of their lives and the country. Back in the army, McVeigh's aptitude as a soldier led him to be one of the first soldiers in his company to make sergeant. However, he was far from a perfect example of the American soldier. Men who served with him said that McVeigh often made derogatory remarks about black Americans and that he would often assign the black American soldiers to the most undesirable work whenever he had the authority to do so. In his spare time, McVeigh obsessed over his growing collection of guns. While other soldiers celebrated their off time, McVeigh read survivalist magazines or cleaned his guns from his personal collection. It was against army regulations for McVeigh to possess a private gun collection in the barracks, but as we will see more and more in this story, McVeigh wasn't one to observe any rule which he saw as restrictive of his right to carry. He maintained a private armory of at least 20 rifles and assault weapons under his bunk. We know this because of accounts from men who served in McVeigh's unit. What we don't know is whether or not the Army Command knew about McVeigh's guns, or if they cared. 
With the end of the Cold War in 1989, the Army was discharging rank-and-file soldiers as part of necessary cutbacks. McVeigh had no interest in leaving the Army. For the first time in his life, he had found something he truly excelled at. So he applied to join the Army's special forces, since the Green Berets were not going to be affected by the downsizing. By all accounts, McVeigh threw himself into training for the grueling physical exam. However, before he was given a chance to try out, he was deployed. McVeigh's exam was scheduled for November of 1990. Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait meant that he would have to wait. As expected, McVeigh stood out as a soldier, though he was disappointed that he saw less action than he would have liked. He was awarded a number of medals, including a Bronze Star and a Combat Infantry Badge. Despite appearing like a model soldier, there were rumblings of a darker pattern of behavior from McVeigh's army days. After the bombing, reporters looked into McVeigh's war record. There were rumors, though nothing confirmed, that he had executed surrendered prisoners. That's a war crime. And though we don't know that it for sure happened, it certainly fits his profile. Like we said, this action was never confirmed, and McVeigh was never court-martialed for his alleged crimes. But after the bombing, journalists sought out one of McVeigh's commanding officers who refused to speak about McVeigh's time in the Army. The officer would not even go on the record with his name. And maybe there's a good reason for that. Any commanding officer who doesn't report a war crime committed by a trooper under their command is subject to prosecution. If I was potentially on the hook for a war crime, I certainly wouldn't be talking to reporters about it. Or, just as likely, he didn't want to comment on blatant rumors with no proof. McVeigh returned to the States and was rescheduled to take his Special Forces entrance exam. He wasn't ready. Months in the desert had undone the intense physical training McVeigh had put himself through. He was given the option to push his exam further so he could retrain, but he waived that right. He wanted to become a Green Beret as soon as possible. Two days into the grueling physical exam, McVeigh tapped out. He wasn't cut out for it, and he would not be given a second chance. McVeigh's relationship with the Army soured after that. Although his evaluators paraded McVeigh as a model soldier with strong leadership potential, McVeigh felt that it would take too long for him to excel in the Army in the way that he wanted to. He was honorably discharged from the Army in 1991. He figured his next step would be to pursue a lifelong dream of opening a gun shop. That plan never materialized. McVeigh's life reverted back to how it was before he joined the Army. He worked a series of odd jobs, mostly as a security guard. His efforts at romance often led to rejection. He had few close friends or family, and he would talk extensively about his hatred of taxes and the government to anyone who would listen. Ironic, given that the very taxes he hated were what funded the army, which would always be the best job McVeigh ever had. Extremists with similar psychological profiles to McVeigh tend to separate the U.S. Army and the U.S. government. The army was a band of brave, pro-America forces, while the government was a corrupt institution that had it out for its own citizens. Nothing could convince McVeigh otherwise. Around this time, McVeigh began writing letters to various newspapers complaining about taxes as the instrument of an oppressive, mismanaged government. 
It was the summer of 1992 when McVeigh first reconnected with his friend from basic training, Terry Nichols. He had been living with his father for the first year after leaving the Army. But in 1992, he moved to a farm in Michigan owned by Nichols' brother. Reportedly, the two men would act out live fire exercises and other paramilitary drills. Before he left the Army, Nichols had spoken of his dream to start his own paramilitary organization. He emphasized that he would one day have an unlimited supply of weapons. Naturally, this intrigued McVeigh. While Timothy McVeigh was overseas fighting in the Gulf War, Terry Nichols was overseas for different reasons. In 1990, he married Marife Torres, a 17-year-old girl from the Philippines who he had met through a mail-order bride service. Nichols traveled to the Philippines a number of times between 1990 and 1995, sometimes without his wife. It's not clear why he went alone, and since the bombing, these trips look increasingly suspicious. Through the early 90s, Nichols maintained his interest in gun rights and the survivalist movement, which is likely what led to his reconnection with McVeigh. McVeigh was also still an avid follower of the survivalist movement. However, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the movement had shifted in its focus. For the duration of the Cold War, the potential threat of a communist invasion had been a key incentive to become a survivalist. When the Cold War ended, the movement needed a new threat to prepare for. They found it in the United States government. In 1992, President Bill Clinton was campaigning for stricter gun control laws. McVeigh began to express his belief that the government planned to rob citizens of their right to protect themselves with firearms in preparation for a war between the tyrannical government and its own citizens. McVeigh joined the National Rifle Association in 1992, but he canceled his membership in 1994 because he felt that the group was too soft in its views on assault weapons. McVeigh never opened that gun shop, but he did start a mail-order gun business. For a time, he traveled the gun show circuit, handing out brochures and bumper stickers that reflected his pro-gun, anti-government stance. McVeigh felt that all his preparation was waiting for the inevitable moment when the United States took up arms against its own citizens. In McVeigh's mind, that moment came in 1992 with the Ruby Ridge standoff. On August 21, 1992, survivalist Randy Weaver was approached at his home by the U.S. Marshals following his failure to appear on firearms charges. He refused to come quietly, and the ensuing shootout resulted in the death of both U.S. Marshal William Deegan and Weaver's 14-year-old son, Samuel. What followed was an 11-day standoff between Weaver's family and the combined force of the U.S. Marshals and the FBI. During the siege, Weaver's wife, Vicki, was shot and killed by an FBI sniper. The publicity fallout of the Ruby Ridge standoff placed most of the blame for the incident on the FBI and the Marshal Service. At Weaver's trial, the court found that it was the FBI and Marshall's poor handling of the situation that led to the death of Weaver's wife and son. Weaver later won a civil suit against the government. To McVeigh, Ruby Ridge was the sum of all his fears. 
Despite having no connection to the incident beyond what he learned from the news, McVeigh was convinced that Randy Weaver's son and wife had been intentionally murdered by a government that was seeking to take away a man's right to possess firearms. McVeigh focused specifically on Lon Horiuchi, the FBI sniper who shot and killed Vicki Weaver. He wrote hate mail to Horiuchi and even considered assassinating him. The final straw for McVeigh occurred on April 19, 1993. Agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives attempted to raid a compound that served as the home of the religious sect known as the Branch Davidians and their leader, David Koresh. The incident is known today as the Waco Siege. The standoff began when the ATF secured a warrant to arrest David Koresh and search his compound for illegally stockpiled weapons. Koresh and his followers defended themselves from the attempted raid. The ensuing firefight killed four government agents. For 51 days, U.S. law enforcement besieged the compound before finally attempting an all-out assault. When this happened, David Koresh ordered his followers to start a fire, which quickly consumed the entire compound. 76 people, including Koresh, perished in the fire. McVeigh and Nichols watched the siege play out on TV. They were convinced that this was the first incursion of the war between the government and the citizens. McVeigh actually traveled to Waco during the siege to show his support for the Branch Davidians. He handed out pamphlets to other like-minded Second Amendment supporters. Because the Ruby Ridge standoff was still a recent memory, McVeigh also handed out pamphlets that included Lon Horiuchi's home address. By his own admission, he hoped that someone would kill Horiuchi. Threatening a government employee is a felony, and yet McVeigh was never arrested. As far as we know, he wasn't even put on a watch list. Watch lists weren't as common back then. One fact we'll keep coming back to in this story is how unusual the idea of a terrorist attack on American soil was. No one was expecting what McVeigh did next. With the death of the Branch Davidians, many of whom were unarmed women and children, McVeigh felt that he had a responsibility to retaliate against the government. The next step was to pick a target. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to conspiracy theories. Timothy McVeigh was a loner. He saw himself as an outlaw. He was angry. His interests exclusively revolved around his guns and his conviction that the government was going to take them away. While some may look at the 1992 Ruby Ridge incident and the 1993 Waco siege as tragic cases of conflict between law enforcement and extremist groups, McVeigh saw them as acts of war. McVeigh became more and more radical during the early 1990s. He traveled to gun shows. He sold ATF and FBI hats that were covered in bullet holes. And more troubling, he and Nichols began experimenting with building pipe bombs and other explosives. Nichols and McVeigh had both vowed revenge against the government after watching the coverage of the Waco siege. By this time, Nichols, like McVeigh, had difficulty holding a steady job and spent most of his time traveling the country, visiting gun shows and associating with extremist right-wing groups. It's unclear exactly when the two men decided to blow up a federal building, but we can deduce that it was likely at some point in 1994 when the U.S. government passed an assault weapons ban. McVeigh's fears had come true. Now the government wasn't just infringing on his Second Amendment rights, they were infringing on his livelihood. At this point in his life, McVeigh was making most of his money through mail-order gun sales. McVeigh and Nichols wanted to strike back. For a time, they considered putting together a nationwide network of paramilitary assassins. They would take out key targets, such as Lon Horiuchi and U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. In their minds, any employee of the government was actively supporting a tyrannical regime. In the war that only existed in the minds of McVeigh and Nichols, any federal employee was a willing combatant. Eventually, they decided that the best way to strike against the government was to blow up a federal building. When he was interviewed in prison, McVeigh compared the Murrah building to the Death Star from Star Wars. Surely some of the people who died when the Death Star blows up at the end of the film were just ordinary people doing a job. But in doing that job, they chose to take the side of the evil empire. Neither of the men lived in Oklahoma. But they picked the state because they believed carrying out their attack in America's heartland would send the strongest message. That doesn't seem like the strongest reasoning for picking a target. No, it would make more sense if they were assigned the target. But as is, there is no proof that they were. We should note here, however, that regardless of what McVeigh said about the Murrah building, the people who work there and the effectiveness of the target... The Murrah building didn't really line up with his idea of a building full of government-employed soldiers. The Murrah building housed regional offices for the ATF and DEA, but it also had a social security office and a veterans affairs office. Over 500 people worked in the Murrah building and hundreds more visited each day to use basic government services. McVeigh claims he wanted to blow up a federal building and that any collateral was a regrettable necessity. 
Maybe he believed that, but his actions reflect that of a man who simply wanted to kill as many people as possible. Seven months before the day of the bombing, McVeigh was living in Arizona with a friend named Michael Fortier. They experimented with drugs, specifically marijuana and meth. McVeigh informed Fortier of his and Nichols' plan to blow up the Murrah building. McVeigh actually showed Fortier and his wife Lori plans for the bomb he was preparing to build. Fortier declined to take part in the plot, but he also failed to report McVeigh's plans to law enforcement. In the fall of 1994, Nichols and McVeigh began gathering equipment. They bought or stole ammonium nitrate, an agricultural fertilizer, with the intent of building a bomb that could be transported in a truck. For over six months, they planned and built their bomb. The final device they used for the actual bombing contained at least 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate. They stole what they couldn't legally purchase. In one instance, McVeigh posed as a motorcycle racer in order to purchase nitromethane. The seller, Tim Chambers, refused to sell McVeigh the fuel in the quantity he wanted and later reported McVeigh to the FBI. Unfortunately, that was not enough to lead the agency to action against McVeigh. So even though McVeigh had appeared on the FBI's radar, he was allowed to gather supplies and build a bomb totally unbothered. For over six months, McVeigh and Nichols prepared, gathering supplies and detonating smaller bombs in the desert to practice for the real thing. On April 14, 1995, McVeigh checked into the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas. This would be the final site of operation before he left for Oklahoma to carry out the plan. He rented a truck from the Ryder Rental Company. Then, on April 16th, he and Nichols drove what was to be their getaway car down to Oklahoma City and parked it several blocks away from the Murrah building. He removed the license plate but left a note that read, not abandon, please do not tow. It clearly worked. No one towed the car. There has long been the suspicion that at least one more person physically carried out the attack on April 19th. If that is true, well, maybe their job was to watch the car. Back in Kansas on April 17th, they assembled the bomb in the Ryder truck. McVeigh placed additional explosives within reach of the driver so that he could detonate the bomb manually if it came to that. For the primary ignition, a fuse was run through the explosives up to the cab, which would allow McVeigh to ignite and then quickly abandon the truck bomb. But on April 18th, the day before the bombing, Nichols returned to his family. It's still unclear why he did this. Nichols has never spoken to why he bailed on the plan after helping with every other step in building the bomb. Well, this may have been a ploy to help with his trial. Anything he could do to distance himself from McVeigh would help. McVeigh also gave little insight into why Nichols left when he did. It would seem that Nichols had crossed the point of no return a long time before he and McVeigh parted ways. One of the few statements McVeigh gave about Nichols was that he was full of talk, but at the end of the day, his family controlled his life. McVeigh seems like the kind of person to think that caring more about your family than killing hundreds of people was a bad thing. But not having Nichols around to help didn't deter McVeigh. 
McVeigh saw himself as the one man who had the will to do what he thought was necessary. McVeigh's resolve never wavered. Or if it did, there's no record of it. He had decided the date of the attack long in advance, April 19, 1995, two years after the violent end of the Waco siege and 220 years after the battles at Lexington and Concord, which started the American Revolution, McVeigh was left to carry out the final bloody part of the plan on his own. On the morning of April 19, 1995, McVeigh got dressed in his motel room outside Oklahoma City. He wore his favorite shirt, which carried the words, Sic Semper Tyrannis. Thus ever to tyrants. These words were shouted by John Wilkes Booth before he assassinated Lincoln. McVeigh carried on his person a number of what he considered to be revolutionary materials. Pages from the Turner Diaries, a fiction novel about white supremacists who blow up an FBI building and ignite a race war. He also had a bumper sticker with Thomas Jefferson's quote, When the government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. McVeigh had added a note under this quote, Maybe now there will be liberty. He left the Kansas motel early in the weaponized truck and entered Oklahoma City shortly before 9 a.m. When pressed, McVeigh has always expressed that the hundreds of deaths he caused were regrettable, but not the main point of his attack. However, if his plan was to just destroy a federal building, he could have detonated the bomb in the middle of the night when there were fewer people. Instead, he approached the Murrah building in the truck just before 9 in the morning just as hundreds of people were arriving at work or entering the building to visit one of the government offices. The original plan was to park the truck in the underground garage below the building, where the blast would cause maximum damage to the building's integrity. However, McVeigh had misjudged or simply forgotten to measure the height of the rider truck. It was too large to fit through the entrance to the garage. So instead, he parked it in front of the building. It's hard to imagine what the national attitude toward acts of mass terrorism was prior to April 19, 1995. Today, an abandoned, unmarked, load-bearing van parked in front of a federal building would be a red flag. But back then, terrorism was something that happened in other countries. Law enforcement didn't consider threats of that scale possible on American soil. At any given time, the Murrah building had only one security guard on staff. For a window of at least five hours a day, there was no security guard on the premises. All of this goes to illustrate how utterly unprepared everyone was for what happened shortly after 9 a.m. on the morning of the 19th. McVeigh lit the fuse at 8.57 a.m. He had five minutes to get clear of the blast zone. He locked up the truck and quickly moved toward where he had parked the getaway vehicle. At 9.02 a.m., the bomb exploded. Everything went black. There was a loud, deafening noise. I felt like I was being thrown or falling, and I could hear people screaming. What it felt like was just a concussion of some kind, an earthquake. The whole ground shook. And then I seen all kinds of smoke. It was chaos, panic everywhere. People just running and screaming everywhere. 
The initial explosion destroyed over a third of the building, and most of the rest of the structure collapsed soon after. Investigation into the timeline of the building's collapse would later find that, had the building's load-bearing columns been reinforced for earthquakes or similar seismic disturbances, it likely would not have collapsed. However, the government office in charge of contracting the building's construction felt this was not necessary since Oklahoma does not experience earthquakes. According to the investigation, well over a hundred people would have survived that day if the building had been better reinforced. Every single building in the downtown Oklahoma City area experienced some kind of damage due to the blast. Seismologists report that the explosion measured a 3.0 on the Richter scale. Before the dust and ash had even settled, law enforcement was hunting for the man or men responsible. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now back to the story. There are ambulances loading people on stretchers. of people, oh God, more people lying in the curb, covered with blankets, they're being attended to by ambulance workers. There are people covered with blood. That was an eyewitness account of downtown Oklahoma City shortly after the bombing on April 19, 1995. Bomber Timothy McVeigh was arrested the same day as the bombing. He was actually taken into custody less than two hours after the explosion for reasons having nothing to do with the explosion. After the bomb went off, McVeigh successfully reached his getaway vehicle. He got onto Interstate 35 and headed north, back towards Kansas. For whatever reason, he never stopped to put the license plate back on the car. He was pulled over by State Trooper Charles Hanger just before he reached the Oklahoma-Kansas border. Hanger immediately noticed a bulge in McVeigh's jacket where McVeigh was keeping his gun. His permit for the weapon was not legal in the state of Oklahoma. McVeigh was arrested for illegal firearm possession and sent to the county jail. It was the first time in his life Timothy McVeigh had ever been arrested. At the same time, the FBI was already closing in on the man behind the bombing. The initial assumption had been that the explosion was the work of foreign terrorists. This hypothesis came from the 1993 attempted bombing of the World Trade Center, which was orchestrated by Ramzi Youssef, a Kuwait-born international terrorist. However, the foreign terrorist theory was quickly disregarded as the FBI Behavioral Science Unit gained insight into the psychology of the bomber. Agent Clinton Van Zant was the first one to note the significance of April 19th as the date of the bombing. The FBI knew within a matter of hours that they were likely looking for a white man in his 20s. He would possibly be part of a militia or another fringe group, and his motivation for the bombing would be related to the Waco siege. Miraculously, investigators were able to find an intact piece of the Ryder truck that had the vehicle identification number on it. An axle of the truck had been blown two blocks away from the explosion. Investigators traced the vehicle identification number to the Ryder facility where McVeigh had rented the truck. 
The owner of the rental agency was able to help the FBI make a sketch of McVeigh. And at this point, law enforcement realized that they were not dealing with a Middle Eastern suspect. McVeigh had used his real name to sign for the rental truck and at the motel in Kansas, which the FBI quickly traced him to. He'd also signed his own name on the charge sheet at the Perry Police Station, where he was taken after his arrest. Unlawful possession of a firearm is a misdemeanor. Under normal circumstances, McVeigh would have had a court date set and then be released. However, on that particular day, the judge assigned to McVeigh's case was booked with other cases. McVeigh was conveniently held in jail for two days until April 21, 1995. On the day McVeigh was scheduled to be released from the Perry County Jail, federal agents tracked down his name from his misdemeanor charges, arrived at the jail, and took him into custody. This was a very big break for law enforcement. Who knows how long the manhunt would have gone on for if McVeigh had been allowed to just leave. Knowing what we know about McVeigh, it would only have led to more death. McVeigh's driver's license was confiscated when he was arrested. His listed address was the ranch of Terry Nichols' brother, James. Remember, on the day of the bombing, Nichols was safe at home with his family in Kansas. It's unclear why he didn't take steps to avoid arrest when he heard of the bombing. Regardless of his reasons, Nichols learned he was being sought for arrest and turned himself in on April 21st. Finally, Michael Fortier and his wife Lori, who knew about McVeigh's plans but didn't participate or report him, were both arrested as accomplices. At this point, law enforcement had in custody everyone that would ever be confirmed to have had a part in the Oklahoma City bombing. McVeigh's trial began on April 24, 1997, just over two years after the bombing. The task force that investigated the bombing for the trial was the largest U.S. criminal task force since the assassination of President Kennedy. Judge Richard Match believed that McVeigh would not have an impartial jury if he was tried in Oklahoma City. So he ordered the case to be tried in Denver, Colorado. Because it was a federal prosecution, the judge had the ability to try McVeigh anywhere in the country. For his trial, McVeigh wanted his defense team to argue that the bombing was an act of self-defense from an oppressive government. They didn't go with that defense. Regardless of what McVeigh believed to be true, there was no way that any lawyer was going to prove that the government was actively out to kill McVeigh, which is what they would have had to do to win with that argument. McVeigh wouldn't deny that he had been the man behind the bombing, but he did continually express that his actions were that of a soldier, not a murderer. Clearly, that argument didn't work in a rational courtroom. After over 20 hours of deliberation, the jury reached its verdict. On June 2nd, 1997, Timothy James McVeigh was found guilty on 11 counts, eight for murder and three for the use of and conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction. He was sentenced to death. Although McVeigh killed 168 people, he was only tried for eight murders. This was because his federal prosecution only charged him with the deaths of the eight federal agents who had died in the bombing. It would have been up to the state of Oklahoma to hold a second criminal trial for the 160 additional deaths. 
Given that McVeigh was found guilty of all counts and sentenced to death, the additional trial was deemed unnecessary. Alongside McVeigh, Terry Nichols was sentenced to 161 consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. Michael Fortier agreed to testify against Nichols and McVeigh in exchange for immunity for his wife. He was sentenced to 12 years, but was released 10 years later and placed in the witness protection program. Is it odd that a man who was indirectly responsible for the deaths of 168 people received government assistance in starting a new life? Perhaps he feared retaliation from the victims' families or from fringe extremist groups that supported McVeigh's worldview. On June 11, 2001, less than 10 years after the bombing, McVeigh was executed by lethal injection. The Oklahoma City bombing took place over 20 years ago, but conspiracy theorists are still asking questions about it. And we'll get into those theories in the next episode. The first conspiracy theory asks, did McVeigh and Nichols have outside help? Were there other bombers who escaped arrest and prosecution? Conspiracy theory number two deals with McVeigh's place in the white supremacist movement. Were his actions funded by the Aryan Brotherhood in the hope of kickstarting a new civil war? Did his actions inspire a fringe group to follow in his footsteps? The third, and perhaps the most disturbing, conspiracy theory deals with the government's role in this whole saga. How did they allow such a devastating attack to happen on their watch? Were there factions within the government that knew the attack was coming? Did they want it to happen? All of these conspiracies stem from the same questions. What's more frightening, that Timothy McVeigh had the help of a sinister network? Or that he managed to pull off this horrific crime almost by himself? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more conspiracy theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for more Conspiracy Theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.